Welcome everyone to the Luke Cage Podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. I am a survivor, dear heart. The Luke Cage Podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 209, for Pete's sake, is brought to you by Coco. It ain't coffee, but it'll come in handy. Pete, we have Ant-Man in the rearview mirror. We have Cloak and Dagger at the end of this week. We just keep continuing on in the MCU. Give us that recap. No teaser act. The credits show the episode is written by Matt Owens and Ian Stokes and directed by Clark Johnson. Luke, Misty, Mariah, Tilda, and Reverend Dad use Luke's code to get into a Rand building. What's the plan, Luke? Well, he's working on one. Dad has a plan to a prayer circle. Misty's watching out for lightning. She just prayed with the devil Mariah. Rev Dad has a cut hand, and it's holistically tended to by Dr. Tilda. In the lobby, Mariah is irate that she's in trouble and is reminded that her weapon sale could land her in jail, same as Bushmaster. She wants immunity, and that makes Misty irate. The NYPD is this close to taking Mariah down. Luke notes that there are a lot of options, and they all stink. Mariah catches 40 winks while Luke keeps an eye on her, and when she awakens, she's reminded that Harlem tolerates her, not venerates her. She disagrees. Harlem is elevated by her, and Luke is an overseer. A charged word, to be sure. A bit later, Luke's with Dad and charged up, but Dad's a calming force. Mariah listens to them as Dad notes that with great power comes great pain. Oh, and Dad's been fixed really well by Tilda. Tilda and Luke get a scene where she shares some backstory. She really likes the holistic, and the scene reaffirms that she wasn't in on powering up Bushmaster, at least not intentionally. She zeroes in on Nightshade and wishes she could undo this monster. Still at the Rand building, Reverend Dad recognizes Mariah, the so-called do-gooder. They reflect on parenthood and children with the panache of two pros. Mariah also sneaks away with the Reverend's phone. In private, she calls... Shades, who's enjoying a red stripe at Gwen's. He doesn't answer, but he's caught by Tilda. There's a lot of info sharing, including the revelation that Tilda's father is not her real father. The father of her heart was a gay man, a good man, a great role model, and a way for Mariah to survive. Also shared, Mariah killed Cottonmouth because the latter loved Uncle Pete more than Mariah. Mariah also opens up about the abuse suffered at the hands of her uncle. The result was Tilda who Mariah has never loved. Back at the only precinct in Harlem, maybe, the deputy chief Ridley is now in charge. Misty pitches Mariah's wants. Misty's okay with it. There's a chance to get Mariah on something outside the deal later. The chief will run it by D.A. Tower, remember him? A bit later, the deal comes in and fast. Misty wonders if this is the right play. After all, the late virtuous written hour didn't offer this much. The chief says, let's do it anyway. At Mother's Touch, Bushmaster shows up with Sheldon. I rate that Tilda has taken all of the nightshade. The bounty is up to $3 million of Stokes, but Bushmaster wants him alive. Later, Uncle notes that the nightshade concoction is pulling Bushmaster apart. Sheldon updates his boss. No Mariah, nor Tilda yet. There's also the other job. It's not like growing ganja. But they're interrupted by, oh, Nandi. She just wants the money. 
But back in Rand, Mariah signs the DA's deal as brought by Misty. Meanwhile, the arrest warrant is served at Harlem's Paradise, an empty Harlem's Paradise. The whole Styler's crew are pulling up at the Rand building, and they've got a hammer rocket launcher. Outside, Bushmaster offers Luke a deal. He wants Mariah, and everyone else can go. Inside, Luke considers it, but will do what's right. Outside, Sheldon fires the rocket launcher, though his shot goes awry when Luke throws a hunk of metal out the window. Stylers enter the building, but Luke and Bushmaster fight hand-to-hand, or bat-to-hand, then bat-to-bat. Ultimately, Luke takes him out, promising to always be there should Bushmaster return. Inside, Mariah eyes a gun, one she's sold, let's not forget, and picks it up, ready to protect herself. And she does, blasting away two or three stylers. But once the NYPD arrives, taking away the stylers, Mariah is gone. Reverend Dad gets the okay from paramedics and asks Luke to come with him back to Georgia. They reconcile, admit their love, and go and get something to eat. Back in Manhattan, Bushmaster is being moved by the NYPD. He talks about the old ways, about the Maroons in Jamaica resisting British occupation, cutting off the heads of their oppressors to put them on notice. The British had technology, but the Maroons had the will, the magic, and won. He mentions the power of resistance and, oh, Bushmaster is holding an explosive, which takes out the van. Which is why a bit later, at Mother's Touch, Sheldon is there, telling Tilda she needs to help the ailing Bushmaster. If he dies, she dies, to end the, nope, Episode not over yet. Mariah's walking the streets, that massive gun still in hand. But who picks her up? It's Shades, and he's got something for her. It's Uncle in the trunk, family first, to end the episode. Pete, now we're going to talk about some bad... Mm. Shut your mouth. We're just talking about bad guys, Pete. Let's start with Mariah. Finally at long last embracing the truth and embracing who she is. Yes. That, uh, that all but monologue, I mean, technically a dialogue there with Tilda, but that, that, that scene there where she is absolutely, uh, embracing who she is. And then we see her picking up the gun that she has sold to the stylers, taking it back, blasting stylers away uh, ending up walking down the street completely alone, then helped by Shades. This was like a mini Mariah arc, capturing her time in the show in the last two seasons, mirrored in this one episode. Alfre Woodard's presence in these two seasons of Luke Cage, I, I say that they're understated. I mean, she's always the shark beneath the surface, but now she's above. And even with the attempt at the immunity deal and, you know, we as viewers and even the good guys just shake their heads that this would even be offered. And then the idea that Luke might just throw her to Bushmaster and the stylers and, and somehow uh, broker peace there, but that's not who he is. That's not who he was raised to be. It's not right. It's not, um, you know, in, in keeping, with any kind of Christian ideal, um, going back to his father's, um, you know, upbringing. And there we are with her toting an automatic weapon down the street and shades finds her. And now he's got, um, 
the uncle of uh, John MacGyver. So, yeah, survivor to the last. And you mentioned John MacGyver. You mentioned Bushmaster there. As I was watching the, the episode, I was having a dialogue with myself saying, oh, look, Marvel is changing up the pacing. You know, generally it's one bad guy for the whole season. Uh, last the last season of Luke Cage, the first season, we had that that shocking split where first half, second half. Look, now it's episode two and nine. We're moving away from Bushmaster, and I guess I'm glad that there's more Bushmaster coming. I was I was uh, you know I fell for the redirect or the misdirect rather that he was captured and that was it. And uh, it seems like he's going to be around for these remaining episodes. Yeah, I momentarily got upset when it seemed as if he might have blown himself up with the uh the weapons the guys were playing with in harlem's paradise uh checkoff's bombs and thankfully the the next scene confirms he's he's still around although he he needs that nightshade and there may not be enough, Matt. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned those uh, those Chekhov's bombs there, which usually I'm pretty good at saying, oh, look, here, they're setting up something for later. I think the way that that little handheld bomb device was, uh, the way it was introduced, it was worth such a chuckle, uh, then immediately followed by Pete, treacherous Nandi, coming on into the club there. Um I will admit I didn't see that coming, but of course it did make enough of an impression when he took it out. It goes from the middle finger to the, hey, I'm holding a handheld mm-hmm. bomb. Really, really well done scene. It is. And the magnetism that uh, Mustafa Shukir has brought to this character, I said a couple uh, episodes back, you know, under other circumstances, we might be rooting for him. And then we've seen this campaign of violence now it makes it very, very difficult to root for him. And then we get this speech about the Maroons and about Jamaican liberation and some savagery. But, you know, there there is the heart of a fighter and a rebel there. He's just too violent. I agree with everything that you that, that you've said, and I think that it's a it's a great credit to him as a villain that we don't like the the means that he's using, but what is his ultimate goal? His ultimate goal is to bring more prosperity to his people, to his homeland, to his community. Those are all great ideals. It's just he's going about it in this ultra violent way. And then here we are nine episodes in where, all right, so he kind of wants to send money back home or whatever. That's a nice excuse to kind of jazz things up. But Oh, Bushmaster as the anti Luke cage. Then you get this speech where it's really kind of laid out at least from his perspective, you know, certainly other perspectives throughout history that sometimes you do need violence to overcome mm-hmm. that oppression. And you kind of go, Whoa, there's, there's a whole different, uh, portion of the maybe not the viewing audience but there's a different portion of the the world in the mcu who absolutely would see bushmaster as a hero yeah and he's a far more compelling character when you think about it than luke cage what does luke cage want to do keep harlem safe keep claire safe really kind of find his place in the world bushmaster has this agenda to reclaim his birthright, to get what he's owed, then to send it back home and and to further advance the people that he he came from. So 
yeah, I mean, it's it's on paper very easy to see why we would care a little bit more for uh, John MacGyver under uh, different circumstances. But in a character like Sheldon, who when Bushmaster needs things done or here at the end of the episode needs somebody to help him as he's uh, on death's door, we get a different type of bad guy. And there's a charisma to Sheldon where you really do sense Bushmaster is the big idea guy. And then Sheldon is the detail guy that makes things happen. And you've seen that, whether it's, you know, real world partnerships or other fictional partnerships, that's a, I don't want to say well-worn to suggest that it somehow is unwelcome or, or ineffective. It's just a well-known way to partner people, the idea guy and the details guy. And there's a there's a way where you can be sympathetic to Sheldon as well and say he's so efficient at carrying out these things and he of course has the same passion one senses he has the same concern for the community uh for the people back home etc and he continues to kind of have every little option ready to go whenever Bushmaster wants to zig or zag yeah every arch villain needs that kind of foot soldier guy and really Sheldon fits that bill well, next up, Pete, let's talk newly minted Deputy Chief uh, Priscilla Ridley, who, of course, we saw in a number of episodes last season in Luke Cage, uh, former soror of uh, Mariah Dillard, and here now running the precinct, at least temporarily, running the operation to to get Bushmaster, which kind of works and then kind of doesn't. We put her on this list. If only because of the first scene in which she appears, she's given Misty a hard time. The rest of the episode, she's very, very clearly on the side of law and order. But there is that background, like you just said. She was in the sorority with uh, Mariah, you know, the, the possibility that there might be some kind of uh, behind the scenes machinations. Uh, so it exists, but. Yeah, that she goes to the club, that she's, uh, you know, ready to offer this immunity play to clean the streets of, of Bushmaster and this tide of blood that he's brought uh, makes it fairly clear, you know, she doesn't really belong on this list. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> most certainly belonging on this list is uh, Officer Nandi Tyler, who, mm -hmm. you know, goes goes beyond her oath, her badge, her duty to go and collect that, you know, I guess best case scenario, six million dollars to sell uh, sell out both Mariah and Tilda. Um, I can only imagine what it was like for the actress. I don't know how far in advance they know these things, but I kind of have this mental image of like, all right, she's been on a good run where first she was like the witchy one and then now she's working together with misty and she's you know they're all part of a team and then this script comes and it's like well there goes my hopes of recurring in daredevil yeah. season three and then <laughs> iron fist and this and that the other i thought i could get you know a couple of years worth of work out of this now pete my expectation is not that i'm rooting for 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 nandi as a as a you know, this fate to happen to her as a real person but fictionally nandi's got to die before the end of this season uh, at least be confronted on the, the move she made here, literally going from a scene in which she shows up in Harlem's paradise to collect to, um, Luke's father talking about rats on the street. <laughs> rats indeed. I mean, I, I, I was shocked 
truly, if only because there had been that turn towards her being mm -hmm. nicer. And look, do, do I think that the writing room has and more spent... likable? I think too. Oh yeah. I I don't think that she has spent tons and tons. I don't. Pardon me. I don't think the writing room has spent tons of time saying, "Hey, what's a really neat arc for Nandi?" But I'll tell you this: in retrospect, if now, I mean, short of oh man, the, the deputy chief told me to go do this. It was an undercover operation for a, for a, a zig and a zag of, of the NYPD. Short of that, there's no coming back from this. And I was kind of starting to like Nandi. Yeah, no, I was as well. And I can only hope that going forward, the conflict between her and Misty, their shared basketball heritage, their similar positions can be really compelling. Well, last on the list, Pete, is Shades. Only appears in two scenes and briefly in those two scenes. Uh, I fell for it in the beginning. I mean, it's it, so quickly in the beginning. In his first scene where he's there at the, uh, at the restaurant. At Gwen's, yeah. He, he just seemed so calm and so at peace. And it went by so quickly. I, Pete, I guess I'm just falling for, McGu not MacGuffins, but falling for uh, misdirection. Well, it is the first trick they teach you at Close Up Magic University. So very true, as uh, everyone who saw Ant-Man and the Wasp knew. But Pete, I mean, we see him, in retrospect, working hard there at Gwen's and then turning it into something at the end of the episode. Yeah, I love that he's sucking down the red stripe there, that I'm not going to take this call. I know who it's coming from, uh, despite not recognizing the number. And then he finds her on the street and he's got the uncle in the back of the trunk there. The big picture where you break down theories about the road ahead. Pete, where are we headed there on that, that dark road with uncle in the uh, uncle in the trunkle? I, oh, I love that. I just want to mention that, we did a uh, Cloak and Dagger episode on uh, Friday, okay, that used the line about magic not being, uh, you know, magic, but just science we don't understand yet. What with the, uh, the daughter who had a father at Roxxon and uh, understanding the earth and everything here, we have Tilda. The line was spoken in Ant-Man and the Wasp. It's been spoken before in Thor. Can we maybe get a moratorium on this theme? Magic science we don't understand yet. Overstated. Well, let's see. Just some quick math off the top of my head. They might have been... The writing room might have been convening around the time uh, that Doctor Strange came out, either in movies or, or home videos. So. Oh, it's long been, a, it's long been an oft-repeated idea oh but sure I i'm just saying maybe maybe we that's get what... it at this point yeah <laughs> find, <laughs> find another way to more eloquently state it how about that magic is things we don't understand pete anyhow what theory or theories do you have for us pete well da tower getting a, a shout out i mean we got uh deputy chief ridley here but uh connection to uh daredevil in an episode where Rand Enterprises is uh, used further uh, referencing our Defenders Netflix universe. So that was certainly nice. 
it does leave me in this interesting place, all these references of, you know, Tower, who, as you mentioned, we've met in other series, and the Unseen Rand. We'll talk about that for a moment here, how I certainly have the expectation of seeing Danny Rand, because uh, Marvel publicity told me, look out for Danny Rand. Oh, you mean in a tweet seven days after the season dropped? Um... No, I feel like I, I feel like it was announced last summerish when they were filming. Oh, they have tweeted several scenes well, on their Twitter accounts. That shows you how hashtag spoiler pure I am. Um, maybe there's maybe in the construction of this episode they're just building anticipation, and if so, that's fine. But I digress, Pete. During Defenders last summer, I was saying, you know what? We don't have enough time not defending. I wish that we had more individual storylines here. Now we are here, Pete, with an individual storyline, great arc, good villain, great supporting cast, etc. And I'm foaming at the mouth. Where's my Defenders? Where's my connections? Where's my hashtag? It's all connected. Can I just not be happy? Is that the problem, Pete? I think maybe. I had to talk you back from the ledge on a cloak and dagger the other night, so who knows? Perish the thought that Matthew Lafferty would be pining for the Iron Fist. You know what? It's it's the connections that make it fun. Next thing, I'm going to want to see more Harold Rand, and it's just going to be all, all madness. <laughs> uh, how about, Matt, uh, the idea that one... Um, Luke's father would allow his cell phone to be swiped and two in an age of contacts when no one remembers phone numbers anymore that Mariah would have shades number memorized. Well, I will, I will accept more the notion that Mariah might have shades number memorized. I mean, you still have your, your key, you know, five, eight, ten phone numbers that you keep in your head uh, of those important people. Um, as for the cell phone thing, I mean, I think a writer, here's what I suspect, Pete, a writer's room of people who are 50 and under, 45 and under, were probably like, yeah, you know, because old people, they don't, they don't know phones and stuff. Versus like, no, cell phones, alone smartphones are now so ubiquitous that like, you know, back in the day, the old people, you'd make sure that you had your watch and your wallet. Now it's like watch, wallet, cell phone. You just give the pad of the two pockets. Um, I felt like if we are going to accept what was presented as the only story option, Pop's getting so misty-eyed that he's going to look out the window as uh, Mariah swipes his phone. That's a little tough to swallow. And maybe that he kind of wanted this to happen. I mean, it's certainly an idea to think about. How about this reveal that we've finally gotten now? We had suspected perhaps Tommy Rittenauer was uh, Tilda's daddy and killed off something that certainly provided an emotional arc now to find out that it was not Dillard, that um, Jackson Dillard was gay and that it was Uncle Pete. So this is Tilda is a product of incest. Yeah, certainly a powerful moment. Very well, uh, well presented by Alfre Woodard there. Some fantastic acting, great writing. Uh, and I mean, a, a challenging moment to take in. I think one that 
certainly it does the story well even though it, it is this disgusting topic to end with to end with this revelation you know I cannot love you, daughter. I never have been able to love you. I never will be able to love you. On the one hand, you feel sympathy for her. Of course you do. On the other hand, you feel sympathy for Tilda. And it's just this heartbreaking moment that really, really works. In an episode that has a number of monologue slash dialogue and a static set scenes, this is the one that's the best of the best. Yeah, and I mean incest through game of thrones has become something that's being written in more and more i mean certainly i'm not suggesting that luke cage that marvel is attempting to game of thrones up here um but certainly a trap door written into season one not not even one that they wrote i mean we had this molestation we had the character of uncle pete and it's amazing how season two of Luke Cage has enhanced two particular episodes. One, the Seagate episode of Luke's origin told after he's unconscious under Genghis Khani's when uh, Cornell hit him with the uh, with the rocket. And then we had the other episode that was a flashback that is the one that ends with uh, Cornell with Cottonmouth's de- demise heavily referenced in this episode. How about Mariah's deal, Matt, which is now up in smoke? That versus handing her over to Bushmaster was either really ever a possibility. I think there's, I think there's a scenario where uh dad is not in the rand building and luke says you know what you cut your losses hand mariah over that saves misty that saves tilda that saves luke uh that saves the building that saves potentially some of the wayward stylers from getting hurt injured killed uh it saves nypd trouble maybe i mean i don't know that the NYPD really, really cares who's in charge of Harlem's paradise. We've seen that a little bit with some of the other, uh, some of the other police officers, particularly uh, Misty's, I think it was her, her, her Brooklyn uh, detective friend where it's like, you know, let's just keep the peace here. We're not going to solve the problem of drugs or guns, but if we can keep it out of this neighborhood or if we can keep things tamped down, so it's not a gang war all the better. Um, so, yeah, I think that that was an option to hand her over. I think with the presence of dad, that's where story-wise you get the out where Luke cannot consider that. Last one for me is more of a circumstantial one. The fight between Luke Cage and Bushmaster, which is a fait accompli given what we know about his condition and his requirement of the nightshade at this point. He goes for Luke's face with the knife it comes near his eye. My question for you is, are Luke's eyes vulnerable? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, just going through what we know about the process that, uh, that, that made Luke invulnerable. I mean, you kind of sense it was the chemical bath and everything, you know, that the skin was protected, right? So I would read that as if his eyes were closed, and uh, certainly they were. The eyelid skin, you know, is just as tough as everything else, perhaps. Uh, but, are the, you know, 
is the stuff underneath it? Probably not. I'll tell you this, Pete, that was a terrifying scene to watch because I don't know if there was like a digital knife tip there or I don't, I don't know if it was like the old stuntman trick of, you know, only Mike Coulter will move his hand and uh, Mustafa Shakir is just going to let let his hand be moved like he's not actually pushing it, which is, you know, the old stunt trick. But that was a blade really, really close to an actor's face, an actor's eyeball, and I bought the reality of it digital well-trained stunt whatever it was it was like that was a scary moment well we've had the uh the dust that was also attempted to be used by uh bushmaster earlier in the scene used when they fought on high bridge so wouldn't that kind of cement it that his eyes are vulnerable points um I mean, yes, it was blown in his eyes. I think you could also say, did he maybe breathe some in? Or are we going to do the overall umbrella covering of it's got mystical, natural, herbal powers that science cannot possibly know? Because, Pete, if you go far enough in science, it looks like magic. So, like, it could be whatever it needed to be, whether it was his eyes, whether it was his nose, whether it was freeze you anyway powder, even if you have super Seagate powers. I think the two could be separate, but Pete, I don't know. Maybe we're headed to, to more eye action here in the future. Well, Matt, it might not be eye action, although you'll never know if you don't check it out. But the people who visit patreon.com slash fantastic geek get potential access to all sorts of fantastic geek goodies. Indeed they do, Pete. Those goodies, those are the cookies left out for Santa Claus. The real the real benefit, hopefully, is knowing that it keeps the SS Fantastic Geek afloat, whether we are, are exploring Harlem, whether we're exploring San Francisco and Ant-Man and the Wasp, whether we're in space for Star Trek, whether we're doing that other secret thing, which we'll talk more about later in this month, perhaps, if not certainly by August. Uh, and indeed, all the shows that we podcast are helped uh, kept aloft by those who visit patreon.com slash fantasticgeek and uh, throw them to the old community jar there. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. And then there's all sorts of levels to contribute to after that. But thanks again for making this possible. Word on the street where we hear from you, the listener. Pete, I heard you got a good one. Yes, we had put the call out after some digital vandalism to our iTunes accounts there. Number of one-star reviews left to our family of podcasts. And you listeners have responded tremendously, so thank you for that. We have one from Alt Word Finder. Uh, the headline is Great MCU Podcast, Five Stars. And it reads, it's almost as fun to listen to them recap and discuss the MCU shows and movies as it is to watch. Matt and Peter are consistent and concise, and they add context and clarity to the works. They clearly love the content the MCU provides and Star Trek Discovery too, but they're not afraid to give their honest opinions when they're less than pleased with a show. I never miss an MCU podcast from Fantastic Geek. Kind words indeed, always appreciated. 
keeping us keeping us emotionally aloft just as patreon keeps us uh, keeps us in the uh in in the black ink there pete how can people continue to share their thoughts with you about luke cage as we enter the last uh the, the last bunch of episodes here the end game here you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e-t-e-r-j-k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,028 followers can't be wrong and while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Visit fantasticgeek.com. Leave a comment there. Check us out on Gmail, Twitter, Instagram, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with a PH, all one word, like it today. Pete, for those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we'll be talking more Luke Cage on Thursday. We'll be talking cloak and dagger on friday the more luke cage from there if you're all luke cage all the time we'll see you on thursday we'll see you on sunday we'll see you on tuesday and then like a thursday and then a sunday then i think we're done <laughs> something like that the end is in sight pete i wish it wasn't but it is for this episode so with that i would say adios to all the listeners and give you the final word you know i executive produced this <laughs>